Good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter number 7, verse number 15. I appreciate Brother Buddy leading the music this morning. Brother Scott is in Sandusky, Ohio, uh, helping Brother Jason finish that church building there. If we could get Brother Buddy to just one more Gaither concert, I think we might get him to cut loose. <laughs> we appreciate you, Brother Buddy. I thought about beginning today's service with a video of myself saying something like, Good morning. If you're, vi you're viewing this video this morning, that means that the rapture has occurred yesterday. It also, sorry to say, means that you obviously didn't make it. As many, if not all of you, know, there have been those who have been teaching that yesterday, May the 21st, 2011 was to be the day of the Lord's return. I decided not to make that video, and here are my reasons. First of all, I don't want anyone to think that I'm making fun of in the belief in the rapture. I do believe in a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture. That's something that I think that the Bible teaches. But my faith is not founded on the rapture or even my understanding of when I think it will occur. My faith is founded on Jesus and he alone. Secondly, my other reason is that although we might find such pre predictions humorous on some level, on a deeper level, they're not. And the reason is that it makes Christians look foolish and it gives an unbelieving world one more reason not to believe. So where do teachings like this one come from, and how are we to react to them? I think it's kind of interesting, at least to me, that providentially God brought us to the position that on this particular Sunday we're dealing with false teachers. When I laid these sermons out the order of them months ago, I certainly had no idea that we'd be at this position this morning. Now, this particular prediction of the rapture that we've been talking about comes from a man named Harold Camping. He is the head of a religious broadcasting network called Family Radio. Followers continue to listen uh, in, to Camping and despite the fact that he may has made previous predictions, one of which was that the end of the world would occur in 1994. Although in fairness, it has to be admitted that in his previous prediction, he did acknowledge the possibility that he could be wrong. He, however, makes no mention of that failure when he is establishing his claims of the end of the world in this prediction, it is to this continuing problem of false teachers in the world that the Lord turns his attention beginning in verse 15 of our text. Now you will recall that the Lord has, at this point in his message, this is the great Sermon on the Mount, and he has at this point in his message begun his conclusion. In verses 13 and 14, the Lord maintains that having heard this great sermon, 
demands response. Everyone is compelled to make a decision. And to put it plainly, that decision is to either go through the narrow gate onto the difficult way that leads to life eternal, or go through the wide gate and onto the broad path which leads to destruction. Now I want you to read along with me as I begin reading in verse number 15. As Jesus continues his conclusion, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So after having given an invitation to all those who heard his message to enter by the narrow gate, to come to God by the only way that he has provided, Jesus warns that not everyone who claims to speak for God actually does so. These false teachers are those who come along promoting, for the most part, the deadly and deceptive doctrine of the wide gate and the broad way. Now, I want you to notice with me this morning four things that we're told about false teachers in our text. First of all, these false teachers are dangerous. Now, the first thing that the Lord does in establishing this thing is that we note that he tells us that false teachers, false prophets, will come. Now, Jesus would not warn about something that is not going to happen. It was already, when Jesus spoke these words, a historical reality. Israel had been subjected to a steady stream of false prophets throughout her history, and it would continue. And in the New Testament times, the church has and will continue to have and be assaulted by false teachers. False teachers and false prophets have and will continue to come. In verse 15, Jesus uses a present imperative command to warn his believers, his followers, and he uses the word beware. Beware of false prophets. Merely the use of the word beware should let us know that what is being talked about is dangerous. If you're walking along and you see a big sign posted that says, Beware, you better stop. It means that there is danger ahead. If you continue, you're going to be attacked by a ferocious dog, or you're going to step off the edge of a cliff, or you're going to come into contact with 50,000 volts and be electrocuted. There is some danger that this sign is warning you about, some potential danger ahead. And since the warning in our text is a present imperative, that means that it is something that one is to be continuously watchful of. Beware, in the Greek, is a very severe word. It means to hold your minds away from. 
He is warning of the danger, and he is saying, don't expose your mind to the influence of false teachers. They're called by many names in Scripture. And the word that they use comes from the Greek. It is the word pseudo, pseudo-prophets, as it is here, probably because they claim divine inspiration, are pseudo-apostles because they claim to be an apostle, or pseudo-teachers, or even pseudo-Christ. But each of them was a pseudo, and that means false. False. So what are the characteristics of these false teachers? Many of them teach that there is no narrow way. It seems of some importance to me that Jesus' warning about the false prophets and his Sermon on the Mount comes immediately following his teaching about the two gates, two ways, two groups, and two destinations. As I've already stated, these false teachers are those who come along and they're promoting the deadly and deceptive doctrine of a wide gate and a wide way. Some try to make out that the way to heaven is not as narrow as Jesus implied. They come along and they say, well, sin is a sickness. Or, yes, sin is a sickness and it really doesn't have anything to do with guilt. What you need to do is get rid of your guilt. They say things like, the Bible doesn't really condemn homosexuality. They say, there is no such thing as an absolute right and wrong. We just have to judge every situation by its circumstances. Others take it even further, and they even contradict what Jesus said, saying things like, the God of love would never send anyone to hell. There is more than one way to heaven. What you need to do is just be sincere. So they come along teaching that there is no narrow way, and others come along providing false hope. False teachers are guilty, according to the prophet Jeremiah, filling the people with false hope. We find in Jeremiah chapter number 23 that the prophet says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You shall have peace. And everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. The false prophet, the false teacher, is one who always has a comforting message. As you listen to him, he always gives you the impression that there's not very much wrong in your life. He, of course, admits that there might be a little something, but he's not fool enough to say that there is nothing wrong. He says that all is well and will be well because he never disturbs you. He never makes you uncomfortable. You carry on as you are because you are all right. You don't have to worry about the straight gate or the narrow way. Another of the old biblical scholars, Arthur Pink, says that one of the characteristics of the false teacher is there is nothing in his preaching which searches the conscience and renders the one who makes empty profession uneasy. Nothing which humbles and causes his hearers to mourn before God. 
but rather that which puffs up and makes them pleased with themselves to rest content in false assurance. These false prophets, false teachers are dangerous because they teach there is no narrow way and that there is salvation without repentance. Secondly, these false teachers are deceptive. When Jesus says, these false teachers come in sheep's clothing, I think you miss the impact of what he's saying if you think that the false teachers are just trying to pass themselves off as sheep, as Christians. The danger is not that, that they are wolves who are trying to disguise themselves as sheep. It's far worse. It's wolves who are disguised as shepherds, not as sheep. Shepherds in that day invariably wore woolen clothing made from the wool of the sheep that they tended. That is the sheep's clothing of which Jesus speaks here. False prophets do not deceive the flock by impersonating sheep, but by impersonating the shepherd who wears the sheep's clothing in the form of his woolen garments. How could people be taken in by someone like Jim Jones, for example? Some of you are too young to remember that in 1978, Jim Jones led 900 of his followers into committing suicide in Jonestown, Guyana. I believe that John MacArthur speaks a powerful truth when he says in his commentary on Matthew, he says the greater tragedy of Jonestown was not that nearly a thousand people died, but that they died believing they were serving God. In fact, the case of Jim Jones provides a striking illustration of the truth. In his book, Deceived, Mel White gives an interesting picture of Jones. He says he, he knew how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes and homes for the retarded. He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center. He provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons and do miracles and heal. The same can be said of David Koresh, the leader of the Branch Davidians at Waco, Texas. In 1993, the face-off with ATF agents and the FBI ended with the fiery death of 80 people, 23 of them children under 17. Stephen Reed, who wrote for the Houston Chronicle, said, The beginning was innocent enough. A charismatic young man, then named Vernon Howell, embraced God's Word, sought God's will, and worshipped God's Son. This kind of observation only reveals to us how hard it is to look at the outward appearances and judge what's really going to happen, what's going on in the heart. Reed goes on to conclude, called to serve Christ, Hal, now named Koresh, instead tried to replace him. Tragically for many, what appeared to be a man seeking to serve God was instead a man deceived and deceiving others. 
But at least a part of the problem of the deception of false teachers is their desire to look just like any other believer. For example, at one time, the cover on the Jehovah Witness Bible, called the New World Translation, was green. But if you get a modern copy of that, you'll find that it's changed to black. You say, well, what possible difference could that make? Well, the Jehovah Witness wanted to look just like you. When they come to your door, they quote from the King James Version Bible. Why? Because they want to sound just like you. Mormons spend millions of dollars each year on magazines and radio and TV ads to convince you that they're just like you. In fact, they grow rather offended to be accused of not being Christians. They refer to their Book of Mormon as another testimony of Christ. We find that religious vocabulary is not a reliable test of true prophets either. One way the false teachers bring heretical ideas into the church is by using orthodox words, but by filling them with different meanings. For example, if you ever come into contact with a follower of the Moonies, you find that they use some of the same terminology that we use, but it doesn't mean the same thing. We cannot tell false teachers by the clothes they wear, by the ministries they perform, the words they speak, or even by their sincerity. So if a false prophet appears to be a true prophet, and a true prophet appears to be a true prophet, then how are we to know the difference? If we can't rely on the outward appearances on, upon what should we rely? And the key, of course, is that we must look deeper. The key is looking past outward experiences and outward appearances. These false teachers are deceptive. Third, I want you to realize that there are those who are especially defenseless, susceptible, vulnerable, whatever word you want to use there, to false teachers. The subtlety of these false teachers is such that the Bible says that almost anyone can be taken in. The most dangerous kind of false teacher is not the one who comes speaking open heresy, because anyone with Bible background will stand against that. The one who is the most dangerous is the ones who manage to look and sound like a Christian. They use the right terminology. They talk about God and the Bible. But in reality, there's nothing real there. Jude says that such people creep in unawares among the believers. Although almost anyone can be conned, there are certain groups of people who are especially vulnerable to false teachers. The first group that I want to mention as being vulnerable are those who are spiritually weak or those who are immature in their faith. One of the most frightening things about those who followed and died with Jim Jones was that the large majority of them had been raised in Christian homes of one type or another. When Jesus talked about the wolves, the wolves that devoured the flocks in and around the area where Jesus told this story did so by looking for stray sheep, for those who were lagging behind. 
In Africa, when a lion chases a herd of zebras, he will pick the weakest one, or the straggler, and he will pursue it until he overtakes it. The false teachers operate in the same fashion. They infiltrate a group of believers, and they look for those who are struggling, those who may be disgruntled, those who are alone. Peter, in describing false teachers, says in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are cursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. A second group that is especially vulnerable to false teachers are those who have unresolved guilt issues. Unresolved guilt always brings a person to spiritual danger. Guilt brings self-condemnation, and there is no repentance and thus no forgiveness. There is a readiness to distort the truth in order to accommodate that sin that is producing guilt in their lives. Paul demonstrates this when he speaks to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Another group that is especially vulnerable are those who have heard the truth but who have rejected it. Those who are susceptible to false teachers are those who have at some point in their lives been exposed to the truth and have either rejected it immediately or they tried to follow it for a while without really committing themselves to it and turned away. These people are in extreme danger. I believe that these are those who are being written about by Peter when he says in 2 Peter 2, 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. One has to guard their heart that they don't allow themselves to be among those who are especially vulnerable. Fourth and finally this morning, these false teachers can be detected. It says you will know them, in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, neither can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Notice twice, verse 16 and verse 20, the admonition, therefore by their fruits you will know them. He closes, opens and closes his explanation of how to detect false teachers by the same phrase. You will know them by their fruit. Here is the test of fruit. The nature of a tree 
is always revealed by the fruit that it bears. Using a word picture, Jesus contrasts the good fruit and the good fruit with the bad tree and its evil fruit. He says of the false teachers, you will know them by their fruits. Since it's an impossibility for an evil tree to produce good fruit, we never mistake a tree when we see its fruit. He says a good tree consistently brings forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree continually brings forth evil or bad fruit. And the word he uses here, no, is a very particular word in the Greek. It is, it is uh, epignosis. It means an exact or full knowledge of something. To know it is to know it intimately and completely. Now let's look at a couple of things that you can look at to judge their fruit. First of all, their character. Their character. One area in which the Lord expects us to bear good fruit is in the area of character. <clears throat> Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when we see a teacher consistently exhibiting those traits, we have reason to believe them to be true and not false teachers. Let me just park for a minute and say that is also why you really can't know people that you only know by listening to them on the radio or seeing them on TV. You have no idea what their character is. I'm not saying all of them false. I'm just saying you can't know their character. However, when these qualities are missing and the works of the flesh are more, than, more apparent than the fruits of the Spirit, we are justified in looking deeper. Character is the first thing. Good works is the second. So Jesus emphasizes what we call the fruit of good works or action fruit, if you would. In his letter to Colossians, the apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says a true teacher, a true prophet, will be involved in carrying out a ministry in a selfless way. He will not be in it for his own glory or for his own enrichment. He will not be in it for profit. He will be in it as a servant of God seeking to serve others. Character, good works, doctrine. Doctrine. Since a person's heart is revealed by his words, as a true is revealed by its fruit, we are responsible to test a teacher by their words. What does that person actually teach? One way to test whether someone was a false teacher especially concerns what do they teach about the person of Jesus. Is Jesus proclaimed as the one way to God? With false teachers, there is often no straight gate or narrow way. The problem is that there always has been a large market for false teachers because most people don't want to hear the truth. They prefer to hear what is pleasant and flattering, even if it's false and dangerous, over what is unpleasant and unflattering, even as if it is true and helpful. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, Paul tells us 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So as we come to the conclusion of this message, what is it that we want to take away from the passage that we've just studied? Well, there are always going to be false teachers. We should not be alarmed, but we should be prepared. These false teachers are to be resisted because they spread the false message that there is salvation apart from repentance. Those in the most danger from these false teachers are those who do not heed the warning that Jesus gave, beware, and make themselves vulnerable by listening to the heresy that is being taught. One way that we detect false teachers is by examining their character, their ministries, and their doctrine. To go back to the point this morning as we began even a brief examination of the teachings of Harold Camping will reveal to you that he teaches things that are false. Even a brief glimpse would be enough to convince one that no matter how sincere he may be, he is wrong in teaching error in a lot of areas. In fact, he, he taught that if you're a member of a local congregation, you weren't going to make it in the rapture anyway. He taught that the <clears throat> church age ended in 1988 and that the Spirit of the Lord departed from all congregations everywhere and that no one should have anything to do with any of them. He taught for the last 23 years we've been in the tribulation period. If you read his calculations on why he came to the conclusion that he came to, it will make your head spin. Because once again, like so many other people, he says this means this and this means this and this means this and then because we put these all together, this means this. And there's not a shred, a shred of proof. And the thing that devastates me the most, <clears throat> he leaves in his wake a whole group of individuals who now say there's nothing to what these Christians are saying, who say just like Peter prophesied, they have prophesied over and over and over and over that the Lord is coming, he's still not come. But Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his coming, but that he is gracious in order that it all might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And help us not to be so consumed about trying to pick a date when we know that our Lord is coming back, but to live every day of our lives prepared so if the Lord comes back, we're ready. We believe that the Lord Jesus is coming back for his people. We believe that he's going to return. We believe it with our whole heart. But we believe that you have left us here for a purpose, and our purpose here is to tell men and women, boys and girls, about the truth of Jesus, that there is but one way to heaven, and Jesus is the way. Help us to not be distracted by people who are trying to set dates and figure out when that day is going to be, but help us to live every day as if he could come today.
for those who have heard these predictions and have in the back of their mind really been afraid, afraid because they knew that they really weren't right with you and that if he were to come today, they had no assurance that they would be with him. Father, I pray for that one who might be here today who's never made a commitment to follow Jesus. And because they haven't made that commitment, even the thought of the Lord returning strikes fear into their hearts. Father, I pray that they might use this opportunity that you've given them, another opportunity to turn to faith, another opportunity to make a commitment to follow you. Lord, we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to have an invitation. Brother Steve's going to be.